I've been really disappointed and disgusted with this whole Mr. Beast, Chris Tyson situation. I understand, I'm not disgusted with those two here, right? So for those who haven't seen, because you're not chronically online, let me break this down. Mr. Beast, biggest creator in the world. And part of his crew, a friend at day one, is Chris Tyson. And over the last little bit, Chris has been on the receiving end of comments about his changing appearance, with the general gist of these comments being incredibly negative. And Chris actually came out earlier this month in response saying, hey, I've been receiving hormone replacement therapy. Though Chris hasn't come out as any specific identity yet, and his Twitter bio saying he uses any pronouns. And also adding in a separate post, informed consent HRT saved my and many others' lives. The hurdles gender non-conforming people have to jump through to get life-saving gender-affirming healthcare in a first world country is wild to me. Just let people make informed decisions about their own bodies. And explaining that it was initially very nerve-wracking to go public with this choice, but seeing so many people learn more about HRT has been amazing. And while we saw so many of Chris's co-workers and friends like Carl and Jimmy just showing support, you also could not miss the absolute wave of hate that he received. Right? Whether it be tweets going viral, videos getting tens of millions of views, or people saying things like they hate the new Chris, I can't believe he's doing this to Mr. B's, bringing up his family, people posting videos saying someone needs to beat sense into Chris, and this whole situation getting an even bigger spotlight on it today because a creator by the name of Sonny B2 posted a video titled, Why Chris Will Soon Be a Nightmare for Mr. Beast. While much of the video is like people saying this and people saying that, there are weird moments that, that seem to kind of like frame this as a business decision. They, there is a comparison made to Disney. This was put forward in many comments supportive of Chris, who implied that there'll be millions of queer kids who look up to him, although this doesn't necessarily mean that it'll add any value to the videos. Mr. Beast has likely cultivated a massive LGBT audience, all of whom are already watching anyway, and if we've learned anything from Hollywood in recent years, it's that adding over-the-top LGBT characters for the sake of relatability rarely works as intended, and is often nothing more than a distraction from the premise of the movie or video. But this is a real person that we're talking about. This is not a character in a movie. This, this is not a business decision. Though I do agree with the idea that this could be a damaging situation for Mr. Beast. It shouldn't be, but it is. Right? It feels like we're at this crossroads. We might be about to see an inflection of Mr. Beast hate, especially if those who've been filling their bank accounts thanks to the right-wing grift and anti-trans movement go, hey, is it safe to go after Mr. Beast now? Right? He's got literally the biggest audience in the world. He's been non-political. We could probably siphon a ton of his viewers. Just statistically, there are going to be a lot of people that do not support Jimmy standing by his friend and supporting his friend. Especially because Mr. Beast isn't just letting his friend get beat up in public while he just sits there in silence. Responding this morning to that Sunny B2 video saying, yeah, this is getting absurd. Chris isn't my nightmare. He's my fucking friend and things are fine. All this transphobia is starting to piss me off. Which I will personally say, I love seeing him being outspoken, but also this puts blood in the water. But as far as how this is actually going to play out, Time will tell, and in the meantime, I'd love to know your thoughts. And then, yo, Missouri, are y'all fucking okay? Are you all right? Do you need help? I just feel like I need to ask because this uh, Missouri Senator Mike Moon situation. I don't know if you've seen the clip that's gone viral, but there was this Democrat that was calling out Moon. And that's because Moon voted against a bill that would ban adults from marrying 12-year-olds. And the back and forth did not go how I expected it would. You said, actually, that should be the law because it's the parents' right and the kids' right to decide what's best for them to be by an adult. Do you know any kids who have been married at age 12? I, I, I don't need to. I do. Uh, and guess what? They're still married. With a reaction to that being largely what you would expect it to be, and then leading to headlines today, reading Missouri Senator says he doesn't support adults marrying children after comments went viral, saying I do not support adults marrying children. That's preposterous to even think that I do. Saying rather he wasn't given enough time to explain his vote, and saying of the 12-year-old that he referenced, the young man was 12, the girl was 11. Their parents allowed them to marry. There was no forcing in the situation. Noting that they've been together now for 40 years, and that the legislation he voted against would have made that type of marriage illegal. With them also appearing to have references back in 2018 
2018 when he also said, instead of running down to the abortion clinic, they allowed these 12-year-olds to marry. Also, while I'm gonna blindly imagine that most of you watching agree that a 12-year-old probably shouldn't get married, turns out that actually in a majority of states, there's no technical age limit for marriage. Though also specifically for Missouri, because of their loose regulations, they have one of the highest rates of child marriage in the country. With it being reported that between 2000 and 2014, there were 7,342 minors who were married in Missouri. But regarding this whole moon situation, I don't know how you think of it as anything other than just super weird and creepy. And also with that, it's important to note that Moon wasn't alone here. He was just one of 50 House lawmakers that voted against setting a minimum marriage age of 15, with it also prohibiting people 21 and older from marrying people 16 and younger. But yeah, it's the left coming after your children. And then, in absolutely massive news, the FBI just arrested the suspected leaker of those classified Pentagon documents. Right, this being connected to the leak that seemingly detailed secrets about the war in Ukraine, also giving insight into how the U.S. spies on countries like Russia, South Korea, and Israel. With the New York Times reporting that this person in question is a 21-year-old member of the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, Jack Teixeira. Reports saying he ran a private online group named Thug Shaker Central, with that group having about 20 to 30 people, mostly young men and teenagers who, quote, came together over a shared love of guns, racist online memes, and video games. The Times also saying they spoke to members of the group with one saying, this guy was a Christian anti-war, just wanted to inform some of his friends about what's going on, with others in the group reportedly agreeing and saying that the airmen only shared these documents with, quote, purely informative intentions. However, one teen in the group then allegedly took a few dozen of those documents and posted them to public forums online, with then Russian language telegram channels picking them up. And the Times reporting that while those members did not name Jack specifically, a trail of digital evidence led the reporters back to him. Those reporters also saying U.S. officials told them that investigators wanted to talk to Jack about the leak, with other outlets then backing that this morning. Overhead footage later showing federal agents seemingly detaining Jack at his Massachusetts home. And shortly thereafter, Attorney General Merrick Garland confirming that the Justice Department did in fact arrest Jack in connection to the leak. And all of this notably happening after just this morning, you had Biden saying they were getting very close to getting answers. But remember, this is still a developing situation. Obviously, I'm gonna have my eyes and ears on it. And you just make sure you follow this channel so you can stay in the loop. And then, we gotta talk about Senator Dianne Feinstein because even fellow Democrats are demanding that she resign now. She's the oldest member of the Senate at 89 years old, and more importantly, she hasn't voted on anything since back in February. And because the Dems have such a small lead in the Senate, her absence has been noticeable. Not to mention the fact that she's just been missing from her committee seats, which has caused chaos, with big issues popping up like them not being able to confirm Biden's lower court judicial nominees, with some of those calling for her to get out being people like Representative Ro Khanna, who tweeted, it's time for Senator Feinstein to resign. We need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. While she has had a lifetime of public service, it is obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. Not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives of the people. That also echoed by Dean Phillips. Though also important to note, on Wednesday we saw Nancy Pelosi speaking on this issue, saying it's interesting to me. I don't know what political agendas are at work that are going after Senator Feinstein in that way. I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way. But some think this was a reference to John Fetterman, who of course got to Congress and then left for a month for depression treatment. Now for her part, Feinstein is vowed to return to her duties as soon as possible, saying that she's just been prevented from doing so after undergoing shingles treatment back in March. She's also vowed to finish her term, but there does appear to be a possible solution in the meantime, with Feinstein asking for a temporary replacement on the Judiciary Committee. Right, that way these judicial appointees can actually finally go through. But this is still a developing situation, and in the meantime, let me know what you're thinking here. And then, it's been over a year since workers at an Amazon warehouse voted to unionize for the first time in the company's history, despite all odds. And since then, the Amazon labor union's been split down the middle, leading to a fist fight with its president, Chris Smalls. Right, recently surfaced video shows him and a former ALU organizer, James Daly, outside the JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island. You see Daly moving towards Smalls, taking swings, though it's unclear whether any actually landed. Then you see Smalls pummeling Daly's upper body until they get interlocked and start wrestling. But it turns out this fight was more than just personal. It was actually symptomatic of a deeper rift within the Amazon labor union. And at the heart of that rift is the very fact that you even know Smalls' name. With many ALU organizers telling Insider they feel he's become more focused on personal fame than the workers he represents. Because if you go back to when the ALU was formed, Smalls has been cast by the media as the underdog hero in a David versus Goliath tale, taking on a corporate behemoth with very few resources and little organizing experience. His face getting plastered on magazine covers, making 
it on Time's list of the top 100 most influential people. Getting all the way to the White House where he met Joe Biden. Hell, he even has his own Hollywood agent. So his detractors say that he's lost touch with the union he once spearheaded. But Smalls also has his own faction of committed loyalists who say his fame is just a byproduct of his real organizing accomplishments. And saying, if anything, all those things we just talked about, they propel the labor movement forward, not hamper it. Arguing that he's inspired workers across the country to fight back and that his critics are just upset because their attempted coup didn't work. With Smalls himself disputing the idea that he's somehow living it up, saying organizing is grueling work and pointing into his less than $30,000 salary. And adding that the real news isn't whatever infighting is going on inside the union, but rather the fact that Amazon spent $14 million on union busting consultants last year. So reportedly inside the union, Smalls has often responded to criticism by allegedly ostracizing his critics. With that tendency coming to a head in a meeting a few days after his fistfight in which Smalls told those who didn't support him to leave, saying, you got a problem with me? deuces. Also, those words coming out of someone else's face, uh, probably less funny. But apparently some of those organizers took his words to heart and began organizing on their own without their president. Because while many respect Smalls' talent for whipping up support, they say it takes different skills to build up a union than it does to manage one. Saying you need to do contract negotiations, fight legal battles, administer a whole organization, and they argue that Smalls just isn't cut out for it. And some even saying he's often absent or unorganized and that the union emails go unanswered. Meanwhile, few gains have been made since last April. But even if there was enough support for this, they couldn't just kick him out. Because in that same December meeting, they discovered that the ALU's constitutions had been amended so that elections could only be held once a contract is signed at JFK 8, meaning Smalls and his team could remain at the top for years, so many organizers walked out in protest. And understand, that is not the only issue around accountability organizers are struggling with, with many having complained about a lack of financial transparency as well as concerns with embezzlement and misuse of funds, which is especially important to the question surrounding Smalls' leadership because he claims the reason he's often traveling and hard to reach is to fundraise, saying he's just trying to keep the union's head above water. But last week, we got financial disclosures from the ALU that gave some insight into where its money comes from, revealing that of the $850,000 raised last year, more than half came from just three donors. The American Federation of Teachers, the International Commission for Labor Rights, and Hassan Piker, which is a fucking hilarious one, because a nice chunk of his money comes from Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, which of course, not a fan of the fucking union. But also notably, a lot of the money comes from small donors, with over $440,000 coming in through the union's GoFundMe between February and July of last year. But also, to be fair to Smalls, you do have examples of people like one labor expert saying it is common for young labor organizations to struggle to adhere to strict federal financial reporting requirements, arguing that when you have something that is initially raw and grassroots, it can take some time to catch up. But whatever the case may be, and whatever happens, I'm going to keep my eyes on it. In the meantime, you let me know your thoughts. And then, with basketball, hockey, and concerts all in full swing, not to mention the baseball season now here, there's always an event for everyone, and you're not going to want to miss out. And even better, how about getting $20 off just by using my code Phil for tickets? Well, that's exactly why I want to thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, SeatGeek. With over 28 million downloads, SeatGeek's the number one rated ticketing app, and with Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, and Drake going on tour right now, you need Seeky. Whether they're a sponsor or not, they're my go-to. Whether it be for a small random thing I want to do with my wife or like I've used it to go to the Super Bowl. It's what I automatically go to. I go and tap my SeatGeek app. Well, SeatGeek wants to make sure that you're getting a good deal. So when you're on the app, look for the green dots. Green means good deal. Red means bad. And every ticket is backed by their buyer guarantee. And SeatGeek is the only site that lets you return your tickets ahead of the event with swaps. And remember, that's $20 off your first purchase with promo code Phil. So make sure you click that link in the description to download the app. And then, is telehealth the future of psychedelic therapy? That's a big question that many in the space are asking as the use of these practices has been growing in recent years. And especially since the pandemic totally upended discussions and practices around mental health, both for better and for worse. Right, and actually I'll mention, if you missed it, over the past few weeks, we've been taking a deeper look into the psychedelic therapy boom from a number of different perspectives. I'll link to them all in the description, but in the first two segments, we talked about the science behind these effective therapies and the policy making that goes into shaping these new legal landscapes. But for the final two parts of this series, I want to bring it down a notch and zoom in on what the implementation of legal psychedelic therapy actually looks like in the real world. Right, what it's like to provide and receive these services. But to do so, we really only have one drug to look at. 
ketamine. Or while more and more states and cities are legalizing other alternatives, those policies are still being hammered out and the services are not yet widely available. Ketamine though, by contrast, has become more and more available. And to give you some context here, ketamine was first approved by the Food and Drug Administration back in 1970 as an anesthetic for humans and animals. But it also had a broad scope of off-label uses, which means a licensed practitioner can legally prescribe the drug for other purposes not specifically approved by the FDA. So as a result, the range of possible uses for ketamine has been expanded, particularly as a treatment for numerous mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, bipolar, and more. So that whole field has been growing and growing, but it really took off in 2019 when the FDA for the first time approved a nasal spray version of the drug for treatment-resistant depression and acute suicidal ideation. And after that, we saw tons of clinics popping up to provide these services. But then ketamine therapy exploded even more during the pandemic, specifically in 2020, because that's when the DEA temporarily waived a rule that required healthcare providers to see their patients in person before they could prescribe certain controlled substances like ketamine. Because with that, we saw a massive wave of telehealth startups offering this life-changing psychedelic therapy from the comfort of your own home, typically in the form of dissolving tablets. One of the biggest startups in the space is Mindbloom, which provides remote ketamine therapy. So to try to get a better idea of what psychedelic therapy services actually look like in practice, we talked to Mindbloom's founder, Dylan Bynum. Especially because as a major industry leader, Mindbloom's really illustrated how the telehealth waiver has been a total game changer in pushing the psychedelic therapy movement forward. Mindbloom's available in 36 states, reaching about 85% of Americans. Uh, we have a network of over 250 providers who are providing care across the country in those states. We're facilitating through our platform of clinicians uh, around 150,000 uh, treatments every year right now and growing. We, I believe, are targeting into 39 states this year. Brennan also noted that there are a handful of states that have prohibitions on prescribing controlled substances remotely, but still, it's an absolutely massive reach. Right? By operating a telehealth platform in numerous states, companies like Mindbloom are able to reach way, way, way more people than traditional in-person clinics. And as a result, Mindbloom's been able to help a lot of people who might not normally seek this kind of therapeutic treatment. Right? Because something that Bynan mentions is that you have this stigma around psychedelics. Right? Many people think that this is some radical new emerging therapy that's pretty much only used by millennials and Gen Z. But in reality, many of the people who seek these treatments are those who have been struggling with mental health issues for decades and it felt like traditional treatments like talk therapy, SSRIs, and antipsychotics are not getting the job done. Our average client is around 41 years old. We actually have more clients over the age of 57 than in their 20s. But it also goes beyond that and helps people who may not have been seeking any kind of care otherwise. Another interesting thing is in behavioral health, oftentimes uh, women seek treatments a lot more frequently than men. In fact, for some services like usually talk therapy, it's like 4x more uh, likely that a woman with a mental health issue will uh, sort of seek that treatment than a man. And our platform is actually closer to like 55, 45% female, male. Uh, so there seems to be something about a ketamine therapy and maybe psychedelic therapy as a treatment that is uh, speaking to men and sort of opening up access to men as a viable treatment pathway, uh, which is helping maybe a lot of uh, guys who previously weren't seeking mental health care treatments that should have been actually seek them out for the first time. And Bynan says that access to services that remote ketamine therapy has provided is one of the biggest advantages. Right before this was an option, many people were just unable to access this care because physical and geographical barriers. For plenty of people, the nearest clinic may be hours away, but because this is psychedelic therapy, they can't drive themselves after treatment. So they either have to find someone to drive them to every single session or take a lot of time off work. But with telehealth, ketamine therapy is now an option for way more people. And this newly increased access also goes beyond geography. One of the big benefits of remote ketamine therapy is that it's, it's helped really reduce the cost for people in a way that has allowed a lot of people to afford it. For instance, as I mentioned, when I started Mind Bloom, the average cost of a ketamine treatment in person was 600 to 1,000. 
Uh, my room's like 120 to $200 per session. It's like 75% or more affordable. Beyond that, a peer-reviewed clinical study done by MindBloom in partnership with numerous top physicians and researchers in 2022 found that remote ketamine therapy may actually be more effective than in-person treatments. That study indicated that uh, that MindBloom's at-home ketamine therapy program uh, is driving clinically significant responses of like a 50% or better reduction in anxiety or depression symptoms for 63% of patients versus 54% then all the in-person studies seem to indicate with the meta-analysis. So about 20% more people are getting a massive benefit. And like 89% of clients are getting some benefit overall. With Bynum saying that there are a number of reasons for this, like the fact that what people do both before and after treatment has a big impact on the outcome of their experiences. So for many people, feeling safe in the comfort of their own home before and during the treatment and being able to decompress there afterwards is way better than going to a doctor's office. But he also claimed that another reason for at-home treatments being more effective is that many of these telehealth apps actually have way more comprehensive mental health care integrated into their products than clinics provide. For example, MindBloom is very guided and hands-on all the way through the entire experience of these sessions. Because remember, we are talking about psychedelic therapy and there are very medical and clinical elements to the process here. Patients have to go through intake first to make sure they're a medical match for the treatment and they do a full psychiatric evaluation with a licensed psychiatric professional. And if they get approved, they buy a package of six sessions and are prescribed the medication, with them then continuing to work with their clinician through the session to make sure the dose is right. There are also a number of safety precautions to mitigate the risk of an accident, which is heightened after someone does ketamine because, you know, it's a psychedelic, with each patient having a peer treatment monitor that's trained to sit with them, observe them, and make sure that they don't engage in risky behavior like driving. And the patients are also given access to 24-7 clinician support call lines. Right, but that's just the practical part of this process. It also goes way beyond that. So MyMoon's platform uh, provides this comprehensive program that's not just the medication, but also combines uh, specialized content, coaches who we call guides, who are specifically trained in how to help people get the most out of ketamine therapy experiences. So preparing for it, going through the experience, which has its own learning curve and skill set, and then integrating the experience afterwards. Group integration circles where patients meet with other patients facilitated by a guide to share their experiences, process them, uh, and get advice and like group therapy, all delivered through a mobile app that's sort of like Calm or Headspace, but for psychedelic ketamine therapy. And then the sessions themselves are uh, done with an eye shade on, headphones, and then using one of the different guided sessions that we have on the MindBloom app. And before every session, people are gonna write intentions for every session. And then after, they're going to journal on the session, either in their journal or in the app. Right, so clearly, the DEA waiver for controlled substances like ketamine to be prescribed remotely has had a huge impact on forward progress to increase access to psychedelic therapies and, as a result, help normalize those. Now, with all that said, there have been concerns about the future of the industry here, because with the end of the COVID public health emergency, some have speculated that the government would let the telehealth waiver expire. But just at the end of February, the DEA announced proposed rules for permanent telehealth flexibilities. And Bynum, who has been involved in lobbying Congress and the federal government to do exactly that, says he's confident that telemedicine is here to stay. And what's more, he also said that telehealth companies like his own will expand into other kind of psychedelic therapies once those drugs are approved by the federal government. With Bynum, like other experts that we've talked to in this series, saying that federal approval is more of a question of when than if. With him specifically noting that MDMA therapy clinical trials are in very late phases and the organizations running those trials are in discussions with the FDA about approval, potentially as early as next year. And so once that happens, there are going to be thousands, tens of thousands maybe of medical providers who will begin offering this to people who are medically appropriate and could benefit from it, which can be a lot of people, and MindBloom assuredly will be one of them. It's also not just MDMA. Bynum has his eyes on psilocybin. That is in um, phase two clinical trials of three phases of clinical trials, and you know, might be a couple years behind MDMA therapy. But both of those drugs were designated breakthrough therapies by the FDA a few years ago. 
the Biden administration recently published a letter saying that these medicines are so important for our veterans and beating the mental health crisis that they're also working on how to fast track making sure that these medicines get to as many people who could benefit as possible. So for now, we're gonna have to wait and see. But in the meantime, keep an eye out for the fourth and final part of the series because we're actually gonna talk to one of Mindbloom's clients. Because while all these interviews have been very cool and very informative, the one thing that's very special, and I think adds a really important element to this is the human element. But in the meantime, let me know any and all of your thoughts on this topic or maybe even your experiences on this topic. Sexy he's not sexy, sexy he's sexy.